It is so good to be with each other and to welcome all of you. Before Phil gives the scripture, I want to give a, a few words about it. In, in Genesis, uh, we see God and humanity exploring the relationship we have with each other. And Abraham has already been in relationship with God for some time by the time we pick up the story today. It is to Abraham that God has given a promise, a covenant, that through him... Uh, the generations to follow from him will become God's chosen people. The problem is, of course, is that he and his wife Sarah are unable to conceive and bear a child. Abraham, according to the custom of his day, takes a maidservant Hagar, and they together have a child who becomes Ishmael. However, conflict and human emotions of jealousy and, and distrust arise, and eventually Hagar and Ishmael are banished. Even though Ishmael carries the promise that God makes with Abraham, that God will in fact take care of Ishmael and bless him as well. And that's the understanding we have, that we share with the Islamic brothers and sisters, that that's the beginning of the Islamic faith. And so we still have an issue. A promise of God that has been given, but right now doesn't seem like it can be fulfilled. And that's the wonder that's in Abraham's mind as we begin the scripture that Phil's going to read to you now from Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bound down to the ground. He said, Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour Knead it and make three cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season. And your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the, ten, at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At that set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, yes, you did. Word of God for the people of God. Amen. 
Help us to see not only what we expect today, Lord, but give us hearts and minds and eyes to see what is beyond our expected. Help us to be surprised in the holy encounters that lie await for us in this moment, in this day, and in the week to come. For in fact, if anything is true, those moments are there. So we offer our time to you now, that by your Spirit moving in our hearts and minds, and whatever edification by our conversation might happen, we might be made ready to be blessed. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the bulletin, there is a panel that gives the scripture that was just read to you. I'm going to invite you to turn to that. And on the bottom of that panel, there are some very tight lines. And I know you probably can't write in those lines. So I'm going to invite you to take out a pencil or pen and and have those ready in a few minutes. There's some things I want to share with you that I think are going to be valuable enough for you to write down to continue to use in your reflection this week and perhaps beyond. Uh, By the way, it's not because I'm so brilliant. It's because I think you discovered some stuff I want to share with you. So just be clear about that. How many of you have been watching television closely enough to see the new great thing everyone in America must have? It is the ring doorbell. You know the ring doorbell? That's the doorbell for about $200 you can bring home, put on the front of your door, and then anytime anybody comes on your porch or in front of your door, it immediately begins to record their presence. It sends a message via Wi-Fi to your tablet or phone, wherever you are, so you can see who's coming to your door, and you can speak to them even if you're not home. You can make them think you're in the house. And as they're standing there talking to you through this doorbell, it is recording their face, so in case they're up to no good, you will have pictures of them, for the police to use in the investigation, which is surely to come. The ring doorbell is all the deal. And if you have a ring doorbell, this is not a sermon to make you feel guilty. Let me also say, as I was talking about this, I discovered that in the new construction, we're hoping to have ring doorbell kinds of things on our front doors of the church. For the times when no one's here and people come to the door. But I want to suggest this to you. What is the motivation of the ring doorbell? What are they playing to? Your fear. They're playing to what is natural to us today, that we are afraid of the person who's coming to our front door. How many of you have the instinct when someone rings your doorbell to hide? Oh, yes, you do. I've been standing there ringing for a long time. We do. We have, we have a fear of people who come up. We're shocked anymore if people come up to our door, are we not? I mean, that never happens because we don't expect it. And quite frankly, most of us have now gotten to the place where we don't really want it. So the idea that I could chase away strangers from my front door when I'm not even home is a compelling idea. And one of the ads for it, as I was looking at this earlier this past week, there's this story, a picture of a a woman 
who's telling about how wonderful this ring doorbell is, and she says this. This is her actual quote. I played it three times to make sure I got it right. It says this. I can see who is on the front porch without exposing myself to them. <laughs> oh, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> Stop it. What I mean is that's what we want in this world. We don't want to become vulnerable to each other. We don't want to be exposed to each other. We're afraid of that. Thank God Abraham did not have a ring doorbell. Abraham had an attitude that he's sitting out in front of his tent, and he looks up and he sees three strangers standing off to the side. He does not run into the tent. He does not turn his face to act like he doesn't see them. Instead, he goes immediately to them and pleads with them that they would come to his tent, that they would come and be part of their community at least for a while. He says, please, please come and have some water and be refreshed. He seeks them out and turns strangers into guests. And they say, that'll be fine, we'll join you. So he immediately runs and gets them some water. They're in an arid land. Critical gift. He runs to Sarah, who's in the tent, doing whatever, and says, Sarah, I need you to stop what you're doing and make three cakes for our new guests. And then he runs to the field to kill a calf and to provide a feast, not a meal, for three people he's never met. And they sit down to this feast. Do you hear how different that is? An attitude of how to receive people who are not known to us from that culture to this? It's not only from the time of Abraham till now. I happen to have spent time in the South, and I can tell you that in the South, 35, 40 years ago, the front door was an open, swinging gate to anybody who showed up. And every meal, at least in the households I was a part of in North Carolina, always made more food than was necessary in case someone stopped by. How we have changed. How we have changed in that understanding. And maybe there's good reason for it. Maybe Maybe the world's scarier than it was back in the day of Abraham. I'm not really sure that's true. But certainly the culture is different. You see, in the culture of Abraham's day, the expectation was is that everyone cared for the sojourner and the alien in their midst. In Deuteronomy 10, in the Scripture it says, Show your love for the aliens in your midst, for once you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Now I want to get to the part here where I want you to write this down. So here we are. I know you've been writing furiously all the wonderful things I've been saying, but but this is the point right here, because this is something you're going to use down the road. Did you know that there were rules that organized how you were to take care of the visitors and the strangers in your midst? Well, here they are. The first one is that one I've already said. You are responsible to show hospitality. If it is your place, it is your responsibility, not your choice, to show hospitality to the stranger who comes to you. That's the first one. Second one. It is an expectation that the stranger in your midst will be transformed from a potential threat to an ally 
based on your offering of hospitality. Actually believed that you could not worry about whether or not the person coming on your doorstep was there for no good or not because they believed in the power of hospitality to change the relationship and make sure they became your ally. Number three. It says here only the male head of the household could offer the hospitality. Now, I want to be clear. Yes, that's very sexist. I get it. And I'm not buying into that. But what I want to tell you is how I take that is this. Not just in our culture of men, but men or women who are savvy enough, street smart enough to appropriately know when and how to offer hospitality. The six-year-olds don't get to decide who gets to come in the house. And conversely, I'm going to be honest with you, and this is just between you and me. We're not going to share this outside the room, right? Anyway, my parents are 90 and 89 years old. And they've lost the ability to be practical with this application. People are preying on them intentionally because they're expecting them to be used and abused. So to my parents, I'm not preaching this sermon. I'm telling them stranger danger. That's what I think this one is. The ones who are able to responsibly offer hospitality are the ones responsible to do it. Number four. The invitation may include a time span. In other words, the guests won't stay forever. Offer hospitality for an appropriate period of time until they're ready to continue on their journey, and it's an expectation they will continue on their journey. The stranger has the right of refusal. They cannot be forced into hospitality. You will stay here and like it is not hospitality. And once the invitation is accepted, there's a way in which you do it with each other. The guest does not ask for anything. That would be rude. But the host provides the best of everything they have, the best food, the best drink, the best room, the best bed. The guest is expected to reciprocate immediately with news of what's going on in the region, predictions of good fortune, or expressions of gratitude. And the host must not ask personal questions of the guest. That would be rude. And finally, the guest remains under the protection of the host for as long as they're in the area. They become a part of the household. Now take a look at what you just wrote. I don't think it takes an awful lot of hard work to understand that this might be a really wonderful way to treat people in our life. And I'm not here to tell you how to deal with your own household or front porch theology, though I will tend to do that frequently in the next year. What I am here to say is that all too often the way in which we have come comfortable with making our front door a place of suspicion and doubt and rejection is too often translated from our house to other places, including the church. Stranger danger does not occur only out there in the schools or out there in our homes, but oftentimes and too oftentimes, churches and communities of faith 
are a little bit anxious about the new people in their midst and are not willing to sell out radically the hospitality that's described here or that's a part of our faith as a people of God. Hospitality is not an accident. Hospitality does not occur when we have time for it after we're done hanging out with the people we want to hang out with. The imperative of the faith that God has given us from Abraham all the way through Scriptures to this day is that you and I are called to be radically committed to make sure there are no strangers in our midst who are not showered with hospitality and respect and welcomed into the community because we have known it to be true that when that happens, transformation occurs and those who used to be aliens to us become friends and brothers and sisters. And we are changing those relationships. That's what the church is called to be. The church is called to be a radical place of hospitality, not only when we gather ourselves in here, but from the minute we walk out those doors until we come back again, we are called to be radical agents of hospitality in the world in which we live. It has been our calling throughout all of Scripture and for all time. And I'm here to say to you, my brothers and sisters of faith, the word today is simply this. How is God ready, prepared, and wanting to use you as a person of hospitality to the people you encounter in your life in the week to come? Now let me be clear again. I'm not a naive man, and I've been out on the streets enough to understand how and when to put myself at risk. And I never want to suggest that I would put any of our children or vulnerable adults or any of us in danger inappropriately. But I want to suggest to you that's not our problem. Our problem is the way we have begun in our culture to typecast those who are not like us and not known to us as being those that we are called to ignore, move away from, act as if they are not there, rather than do the kinds of things that Abraham did, which was to intentionally reach out to establish relationship with them. Do you hear me? That's our calling. That's what it is to be a Christian. When Jesus said, go out into the world and make disciples of my name, he wasn't talking about arm-twisting people. He was talking about befriending people and being the community that the strangers around would know. We can go there and be accepted. We can go there and be welcomed. We can go there and be respected. We can go there and find legitimate, holy ways of how people want to relate to us and accept us. That's the church. See, this story often gets read and we immediately start giggling about Sarah at 90 years old giving birth. Well, as I'm getting closer to 90, I don't find that as funny as I used to. I'm telling you that right now. And of course, it's a message about how God was going to make the impossible possible and how, yes, in fact, Sarah did give birth and Isaac was born and the rest of Genesis and the Scriptures could continue. And that's a powerful story. But what I want to suggest to you today, unless I'm missing my mark, there are not a whole lot of 90-year-olds in here praying that they can get pregnant in the next year. Or 80 or 70-year-olds. 
But there's not a single person in this room, not one, who this week will not have the opportunity to offer radical hospitality, biblical hospitality, to someone around them, wherever they are, that could have the potential of transforming both your and their lives. What will matter is whether we keep looking at them through the peephole of our ring doorbell mentality or whether or not we are willing to open ourselves up and be available and invitational with others. The worst thing you can do when you offer a meal to friends is to run out of food. I was taught that. I was raised in Montrose, Michigan, in the country. And, man, you made sure that people were coming over. There was plenty of food. I've always been afraid, and I've always decided that United Methodist Church potlucks were an act of theological affirmation of God's possibility. You all show up and bring food, and we'll hope we have enough. And we always do, right? Now, sometimes there's too much tuna casserole, but still there's enough food. You always have enough food when you invite friends over. You don't cut the margins. When we do communion, we have people who are dedicated to make sure, you know, this doesn't magically appear. We have people who are willing to come early and cut the bread and place it here and make sure there's bread here. And there's cups that are filled with a potential grace that God wants to offer. And I've always had a simple rule for the people who are doing this work. Don't let us run out. I never want to be up here going, oh, we're done. That is, man, you don't want that to happen. And I never want it ever, ever to be said that in the church of Jesus Christ, based on friendship or fellowship or conversation or welcoming, oh, we're done, we're out, no more for you. So I'm going to invite you to a meal in just a minute. This is a meal that tells you everything you need to know about what it is to be a Christian. We come to receive Jesus Christ. That's the beginning and the end of it all. We come to receive Jesus Christ. And everyone is welcome to receive. No one is restrained from this table because this is Jesus' offering to you. You're a first-time person here. You're welcome at this table like the people who have been here for 90 years. You're too young to come up and take communion. No, you are not because it's an act of faith and grace and you don't fully understand it. We'll teach you as you grow up just like some of us are still figuring it out ourselves. And you come around this table, we're going to make sure there's not only enough bread and cup, but there's enough fellowship and faith, enough Jesus, and enough brothers and sisters around you to love you, care about you, support you, and going through all the stuff you're going to go through in your life. And we're all going to go through stuff, amen? You all, and not only you, but anyone that we encounter this week needs to experience this kind of a table mentality, for this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a calling Abraham had back in the day when he said, hey, we got to make more bread because there are guests that we weren't ready for. And instead of saying, well, you'll have to come back, we're going to stop and make more bread. Who this week will you encounter out there, wherever you are, where you're going to have the mentality, I don't have time, I don't really want to do this, I'd rather not spend time and turn it around and say, how can I break bread with them in any form or fashion to transform and be the church of Jesus Christ? Because 
you hear the story? Abraham made space in his life for three strangers. And because of that, Sarah heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, it was not Jesus Christ, it was God, I get it, but you know what I'm saying. She became pregnant at 90. And you can laugh about that, and I do. Or you can sit back and go, man, if God can do that, think what else God could do. If only you begin by welcoming those strangers and make them friends. Come to the table of the Lord. And this week, bring as many with you as you can in your relationships and in the Sundays to come because it's what we do and it's who we are. Amen.